All right, so this year, West Slide's theme is story. And we may have heard, you know, learned growing up that God's story is about um, teaching us what's right and wrong and what's good and bad. But we really hope that this year um, we would learn more about who God is and what he's trying to do, his purposes. And, and like Kat said, just to find our story within his story. Because in God's story, not all people are all good or all bad, right? We're more complex with that. And I think as we read his story, that God is okay with that. And so we, we find that um, people in God's story, they trust God at certain times, and they don't trust God at other times. They could be strong in certain situations, but they can be weak in certain situations. Um, they can be courageous and cowardly. They can be incredibly wise and yet incredibly dumb. They can be just loving and unloving. And so in God's story, we're invited to be healthy, mature, and integrated, holding both sometimes polar opposites together. One example of this is found in John 3. Um, Nicodemus was super smart. He was a teacher, a rabbi. He was renowned for this. People respected him. He was part of the Jewish ruling council. And um, he, he was just like, he was smart. And he was seeing what Jesus was doing, and he was like, what's going on? And so he goes to Jesus at night to ask him some questions, because he didn't know, he wanted to find out more. And some people say he went at night to kind of um, not raise a ruckus among the Jewish, you know, ruling council. And sometimes um, in the book of John, he contrasts like light and dark. So some people think that maybe John was making a kind of a theological statement of, of John, um, of Nicodemus being kind of in the dark, not really understanding who Jesus was and not really believing. And, and so maybe there's some of that too. And so Nicodemus goes and he asks Jesus a question. He's like, I see that you're doing all of these miracles, but and I know that you're from God. And so like, help me understand this. And so they talk into the night about all these questions that, that Nicodemus has. And Jesus wants to, he answers this question, but he doesn't want to just stay there. He doesn't want to just say, yeah, I'm from God. He wants to go deeper with Nicodemus. And so he tells them this. He says, very truly, I, say, I tell you, no one can be seen, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? And he goes into this like literal thing, like I'm supposed to what? And then Jesus says again, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of the spirit, of the water and spirit. And so what does this mean? Like, you know, Nicodemus, he's so smart. He knows, this, he knows God, he knows the law, but he's so perplexed. But in Judaism, um, what mattered most is being born in the right family, in Abraham's family. And Jesus is explaining, he's taking Nicodemus deeper, and he's like, okay, we're going to start over. We're going to have a do-over, and we're going to start a whole new family. And what matters most is not being born in Abraham's family, but being born of water. Baptism, as John the Baptist was doing, and as Jesus' disciples were doing, as a way to express or identify as a Jesus follower. And to be born of the Spirit, they were very tied, closely tied together. That being born of the Spirit was, was being open to the Spirit and allowing, choosing to live with Him and follow and, and abide by the Spirit and, and what He's doing in our, in, in our own individual lives, but as a community, as a movement. 
So he's like, okay, it's not about being born in Abraham's family, but it's being born in this new identity. We're starting a new family. We're doing a do-over. And so now the kingdom of God is open to anyone and everyone. And Nicodemus was so confused, as I'm sure we all would be, and he was disturbed, and he's wondering in verse 9, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, like, how can this be? And then in John 4 and 5, we find out how, God, how Jesus lived this out. Jesus encounters a renowned sinner, a Samaritan woman, and most Jews, right, they hated um, Samaritans, and they, they hated each other, quite frankly, and, and women were seen as less than, and and she was a sinner. She was known as a sinner. Everyone knew her as a sinner. But Jesus encountered her and talked with her. And, and she got him. She's like, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus is like, yeah. He reveals himself to her. And he says, I'm that Messiah. In chapter 4, he, Jesus encounters um, a royal official who's a Gentile. And we know that Jews and Gentiles, they hated each other. And they couldn't even like eat and share a meal together because the Jews were afraid of becoming unclean. But this royal official comes to Jesus and asks him. He believes in him. And he's like, hey, can you heal my son? And Jesus does it. And then in, verse, in chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who couldn't walk for 38 years. Someone who probably Jews and Gentiles saw as like the lowest of the low. That he was, you know, in the social stratification, he was at the bottom because he had no value in society. Because he couldn't work. He couldn't produce anything. But Jesus heals him. And so the irony is Nicodemus, is he, he knows, he's, a, he's known to be an expert in the law. He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. He's a Pharisee. He's on the ruling council. And he doesn't understand Jesus and how he fits into this and what Jesus is doing. But the people who you would least expect to know and understand and believe in Jesus, they are the ones who do. And so I bring this up because God is healthy He's mature, and he's integrated. And I want us, I do this mostly for me, I want to stay integrated because it's so easy for me and for us, I think, if, if I mess up, I just make myself all bad. Or if someone else messes up, it's easy for me to make them all bad and I'm all good. But we're all both, and we, we're called and invited to, to hold both together and to stay integrated. There are times when um, people who um, come to the church and, and they, um, they just, you know, they idealize church and Christians and then maybe something happens. Um, maybe they trust is broken and they get um, disillusioned and then they make the church all bad. Sometimes that happens. And what breaks my heart most are when people are hurt by the church and... Um, they feel the need to protect that leader or that person or the church because they're connected to God. And they choose to make them good, and then they choose to make themselves all bad. And they think, oh, did I do something? Did I deserve this? What happened? And it's not like that at all. And when this does happen, we need, the church needs to ask for a do-over. And so this is why I'm excited to do this do-over series this month. And uh, just to give you a heads up, like Jordan's going to share next Sunday, and then um, Jordan and I will share the following Sunday, and then we're going to have a panel with the Q&R for the last Sunday. Um, we're all last the panel, which will be um, Stan, Tim, and Jordan questions, and then you guys can have questions too. So if you have questions about what we're talking about, please keep that in mind, and we'll, 
We'll address that at the end of the month, or any time, really. But um, we're super excited about doing this. And um, when we talked about how the church reflects God's goodness and his love and his grace at times, and at times the church can be evil and loving and judgmental. And I think when the church, their leaders, and their people hurt and causes harm, we need to do we need to ask for a do-over because God is the God of do-overs. And so what's a do-over? Um, do-overs are not about getting it right or being good and or perfection. It's not about fixing a problem. Do-overs are not about stuffing our attention and our feelings down and covering them up and becoming numb. A do-over is a new attempt or opportunity to do something after a previous attempt has been unsuccessful or unsatisfactory. So this means that we acknowledge our discontent, we acknowledge our disillusionment, our pain, our fears, our longings, and we bring them out of the dark and into the light. We name our feelings. Being honest with ourselves and God, just as Nicodemus was when he asked Jesus questions and when he, was, when he didn't understand. And I think this is where our healing begins and how we experience heaven together. This is how we honor and care for our hearts and our true selves. So I shared part of Nicodemus's story, and next we're gonna hear three stories from people who are not always welcome in the church and were hurt by the church. And many churches, including Westlight, um, say all are welcome. We have it on our website, we post it on our social media, and um, we, okay, Jared, with the, Jordan, Stan, and I, we met, and we listed all the ways we felt like the church hurts people. And we thought, oh, we can't have a sermon series for like two months or more. So uh, I picked the one that touches my heart, and Jordan picked hers. Um, so I, we know that there's a lot, but this is the one that was really important to me. Um, and so a lot of times, right, the invitation to the all are welcome can be um, loving and caring. Um, but a lot of times that can be, it can be hurtful and harmful. And so I'm going to share um, first as a pastor who is a woman, and then Kat will share about my friend who um, struggles from a chronic illness. And then after that, Juliet will share the story of uh, another one of my friends who is LGBTQIA plus Christian. And so I know that these stories don't represent everybody, but I think listening to these stories are, are helpful for all of us. And as we listen, I want to encourage us to try and connect with the person's emotions, to stay away from who's Lori's friend and what church do they go to, or whether you agree with them theologically or not, but just to listen with openness and empathy. So I'll start with mine, and then I'll ask Juliet and Kat to come forward. But in 1974, um, the Free Methodist Church passed a resolution giving women equal status with men in the ministry of the church. And based on their theology, you know, they, they did all the theological study, and, and this was based on their understanding. And, and not all denominations align with this resolution. Um, there are denominations and organizations where, being, where women pastors are, are in, you know, not welcome and it's not believed to be correct. So currently, the Free Methodist Church, um, there are a few, a few women in leadership, and um, there's 22 conferences in the Free Methodist Church in the U.S., 
And three of those conferences, and each conference has at least one superintendent. Okay. So we have, a, we have three women who serve as superintendents in our conference. And in 2019, we elected our first um, bishop, who is a woman, and she serves along two other men as bishops to serve the whole Free Methodist Church around the world. So when I was, I just give you this context. <laughs> so when I went through my ordination process, the committee overseeing the process was made up of six older men who um, ascribed to the top-down leadership style. And they valued solutions and fixing problems. And my leadership style is more collaborative and cooperative. And so I'm not saying that one style is better or worse, like we need both. But throughout the process, the leaders tried to train me to be a top-down leader and exercise my authority. And I wasn't interested in changing my life's my leadership style. Um, the more the committee pushed me, the more I pushed back. And my therapist would always remind me that maybe this has to do more with your father than these men, right? Because it's, it's so complex, it's not black and white. So for me, my experience, women are welcome to have equal status on paper, but I, don't, I didn't experience it. And at times as I was going through the process, I felt disappointed, at times angry and frustrated. And I felt dismissed, unseen, and not valued for being who God created me to be. So if the Free Methodists wanted a do-over and asked me like, hey, what would you suggest? I would say that, I would suggest defining women, welcoming women, as creating space for them to lead being who God created them to be, to make space for complexities, to have empathy, and, and to be open to what, what women can bring to the table. Like, we need a bigger table. Okay, so for the next stories, I'm gonna ask Juliet and Kat to come forward. And just to be clear, they're not my friends. I'm not saying they're my friends, and they're really my friends. Um, but. I just knew Kat and Juliet would do a great job um, reading and sharing their stories, and so I asked them to read, and they're just really giving kind of like an actor's interpretation of my friends um, sharing. Thanks, Lori. So this is uh, this person's story. I've been going to church since I was four years old. I believe in the good of people gathering for worship, building community, and serving people. But what do you do when you have a chronic illness and need to avoid gathering in order to stay well, especially during a pandemic? I'm grateful for my church upbringing that has helped anchor my faith all these years, and I don't know where I'd be without faith and grace, often shown through friends and family. My illness has no known cure, and I've burned through most of my savings waiting to receive disability benefits as I'm unable to work. I don't own a working car for the first time in my adult life. Sometimes God feels more distant than before, and it can be difficult to reconnect. There are times when all I do is lean in, even if I don't feel like it, because all there is is blind faith. At times, it can be humbling, isolating, lonely, depressing, and frustrating. Why is life so challenging so often, God? It's hard to keep asking people for help. 
I was active at my church before I became more ill and stopped attending in person because I kept getting sick on Mondays. There's a wonderful friend who was assigned to check in on me during the pandemic, and I appreciate her. I have another friend in his 80s who has a terminal illness but still finds ways to stay in touch. But other than these two angels, I don't hear from anyone anymore unless I make contact first. It's easy to become out of sight, out of mind in the church. I'm sure that I've forgotten people that stop coming to church as well. How can we, as individuals and a church, do better? I think that we can start by valuing people the way God does, for who they are and not just for what they do. Also, simple acts of thoughtfulness can go a long way, like sending a text message, a note, or picking up the phone, inviting people to your backyard or a park for a visit or dropping off a meal, asking them if they need anything at the store, anything that lets them know that you still see them. Um, this is my actor's interpretation. As a gay man, when churches say that all are welcome, it can feel really hollow because historically, the church has not been very inviting or even empathetic to people in the LGBTQIA community. Being closeted and growing up in a Christian community has been difficult throughout the years because you constantly hear contradictory remarks about how God's unconditional love, coupled with many church members' opinions, about how abhorrent or inhumane LGBTQIA people are. It's very confusing as someone in faith to feel God's love when I have to constantly be reminded that my existence is a fatal sin that excludes me from truly being a part of the community. There have been many times that I've prayed that I could be more normal because the prospect of not being accepted and loved if people knew about me was too hard to bear. Being a gay Christian constantly feels like you're feeling loved and then immediately taking blows from people and God who supposedly love you. Churches need to do better in creating spaces where people can experience God's community and love. The church needs to be more mindful about what they say and how they hold a lot of power in their inner discourse. When they say that it has many implications that can harm to a lot of people in minority groups, going against the idea that all are welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate hearing um, these two courageous friends, how they feel and, and learning from them. Listening to their stories, it makes me sad and uneasy and at the same time proud of them as their friend and as a church leader. And so I think it's just so important for us, like we may not agree or we may be, um, I don't know, we may not agree or understand, but I think it's so important to listen to one another. And I love their, I really appreciate what they said and I love their suggestions about um, valuing people for who they are, not just what they do, doing the little things, creating space to experience God's community and love, and being more mindful about what we say. Saying all are welcome, it can be loving and caring, as well as hurtful and harmful. And I think Jesus modeled for us how we can welcome those who are not always welcome and participate and engage in his do-over. We welcome with love and care, when we listen with empathy 
and stay integrated. So I want to finish with an adapted version of um, The Big Welcome by Dr. Christina Cleveland. And it's a welcome that Westlight is not going to do perfectly, but I like it as a do-over because it's more clear and it validates the complexities that we live with. You are welcome here. All of your complexities that make up your cultural identity are welcome here. The histories and experiences of your people are honored and welcomed. We welcome you in your exact experience of mental and physical wellness and ability. Your love is welcome here. How you love, who you love, and your understanding of love is welcome. We welcome you in all the ways your sexuality has and is unfolding. We welcome you in all the ways your gender has and is unfolding. We welcome you with your open hearts right alongside your skepticism. Your tiredness, it's welcome here. Your loneliness, it can come here too. We welcome your stress, we welcome you in your confidence and insecurities. We welcome your boldness and your timidness, your loud and your quiet, your excitement and unsureness. We welcome all of the experiences that led you to this moment. We welcome your advocacy for your needs to be met in this space. The part of you that is sad for yourself and for your own losses is welcome. The part of you grieving on behalf of the collective, we see you, and you're welcome too. That joy, that optimism, that love of being alive, your emotions, all of them are welcome here. Your quirks and your ambiguities are welcome. We welcome the parts of yourself that you're still figuring out. And we welcome your wonder and curiosity, your fear, your questioning, the triune God invite all of you to come as you are. Let's pray.